I got to turn this deal on to make sure I'm ready to go. There's a story of a man who took his wife out for a nice romantic dinner, and he took her to a very nice romantic place. And in the midst of the dinner, he pulled out this box, this little box, and it was decorated. He wrapped it as carefully as he could. And he took the box at this strategic point in the dinner, and he handed it over to his wife. And he said, honey, I've wanted you to give, have this precious family heirloom. It's been worn by our grandmother until the day that she died. Well, she was overwhelmed by this romantic moment, and tears were running down her cheek. And so the wife carefully opened up the little box, and inside the box was this bracelet. She removed the bracelet, and when she read what was engraved on the bracelet, she hauled off and hit her husband right in the arm. Because engraved on the bracelet was this little passage. Do not resuscitate. (laughs) That's bad, isn't it? The point is that was a message, not a good one, not a kind one, funny one, but not a great one. Let me ask you this question on the other side of the coin. Have you ever had to deliver a very difficult message? Has there been times in your life when you had to say things to people? It was very tough. I'm sure if there are doctors here today or others like policemen who've had to go up to that door and ring that doorbell and tell loved ones that their loved one perhaps had passed away in an accident. Those are difficult. I know in my experience as a pastor, I've had to deliver difficult messages. And the thing that I'm always concerned about is how will they receive that kind of message? But you know, when I think about difficult messages, it automatically comes to mind all of those men that the Lord used to deliver a message to people about the certainty of his judgment regarding sin, which would soon come thundering down upon the recipients of the message with a devastating result, unless and until they would repent of their sins and turn to God for his deliverance. I started looking in the Bible at all of those men that had a difficult message to deliver. I mean, right from the very beginning, Noah had a pretty difficult message to deliver. How about Hosea and Nahum and Zephaniah and Habakkuk and Jeremiah and Ezekiel? All of these foretold that there was a day coming of God's judgment. And yet... It's interesting that the stubborn and unrepentant hearts of the people of these kingdoms that they would speak to would not heed the warning. Jeremiah in particular, I wish we had time to look at this this evening, 
But the time is short, and I want to take advantage of it. But if you get a chance, read the 25th chapter of the book of Jeremiah, where he warns those of the kingdom of Judah that they needed to repent of their idolatry and their immorality. And if they would not repent, then God was sending an instrument of judgment upon them from the north, the vicious king Nebuchadnezzar. And he did this for a period of 23 years, pleading with people, repent, change your mind. When he went to his own hometown, they refused to listen to him and threw him in a cistern. In 2 Chronicles 36, 15 through 16 summarizes the end result. Listen, the Lord, the God of their ancestors, repeatedly sent prophets to warn them, for he had compassion on his people and on the temple. That was the reason for the sending of these messengers, because God is a compassionate God. But yet God is a righteous God and a holy God and he cannot overlook sin. And they went and they warned. Verse 16, but the people mocked the messengers of God and despised their words and they scoffed at the prophets until the Lord's anger could no longer be restrained and nothing could be done. What a sad turn of events. He sent them great messengers, and yet there was no repentance. Now, folks, you need to know, for literally thousands of years, God has sent messengers into this world to warn them about the great day of the Lord. The time when God would exercise his final expression of righteous judgment his expression of wrath, as Marty talked about last night, on those who are steeped in sin and refuse to repent. Eventually, this judgment of God is going to lead to the complete destruction of the world as we know it. And it's unfortunate that this message, which is still ringing today, this message is still a warning today, That the day of the Lord is coming. And it needs to be heeded. But unfortunately, our world and their confusion, and really in the context of spiritual death, have changed the message to things like, um, we got to save the planet Earth by reducing our carbon footprint. Instead of the true, important, significant message that the day of the Lord is coming. And now is the time. Now is the time to take advantage by repenting of your sins and turning to the Lord. In the final days of planet Earth, God is going to send into the world two very powerful witnesses, prophets, Servants of God, so faithful in the proclamation of the truth that they're going to literally rock their world. I have never seen ministry done in this fashion. I have to admit it. There are certain parts of this ministry that I'm envious of and wish I had. For example, 
if someone came against you. <laughs> often thought, isn't that wonderful? God can pastors have that. Someone comes against you and you turn them into a crispy critter. <laughs> These two servants have a significant message to tell to the world. The first is that horrific disasters that they have experienced from the telescoping judgments of God during the time of the tribulation are indeed God's final expression of judgment upon them. And this is the fulfillment of the thousands of years of prophetic declaration. What you are experiencing in the tribulation is from the hand of God. It's always been interesting when they realized that that judgment that they were expressing, instead of repenting, they called for an avalanche that the rocks might fall upon them instead of repenting. That's a demonstration of the hard heart of those who are spiritually dead. But there is a second part of their message. It's the good news, isn't it? That they will proclaim the glorious gospel message which is found in the word of God in fulfillment of what Jesus said. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 24 and verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So at this point, when the two witnesses appear on the world stage... Those who dwell on the earth, which we have heard is the consistent descriptive phrase of all of those who are committed unbelievers who will worship the Antichrist and will perish with him. Those who dwell on the earth will have experienced the seven seal judgments resulting in the rise of the Antichrist, war, famine, believers being martyred, and large numbers of people dying. In addition, the six of the trumpet judgments have been sounded at this time, bringing destruction on a third of the earth, a third of the trees, the green grass being burned up, a third of the oceans had become blood, and a third of the creatures in the oceans have died. The atmospheric luminaries have been impacted, and a third of the sun, the moon, and the stars have been darkened. And these prophets come on the scene to warn them, this is from the hand of God. Repent! I'm sure they said, and believe in the gospel. In addition, demonic beings have been released from the abyss and have caused people to suffer for five months with scorpion-like stings. Four angels are released from the Euphrates River and will kill a third of mankind. Three plagues of fire and smoke and brimstone will get the job done. And just before the sounding of the seventh trumpet, which will unleash God's final expression of the fullness of his wrath. That's what the Bible says. When that happens, the bold judgments There will be a bit of an interlude here. We see it before that happens. And it's found there between Revelation 10 and all the way to 15. 
And it's in this interlude that we suddenly have these two witnesses in center stage. They have a special ministry, if you will, for a very special time. And their ministry will begin at the start, I believe, of the last three and one half years of the tribulation, leading up to the battle of Armageddon and ultimately to the second coming of Christ. And what I've done here to help us understand these men and their work, I've divided Revelation 11 verses 1 through 14 into three scenes that unfold in this prophetic drama. The first scene, interesting, the first scene is the measuring of the temple. The measuring of the temple. And there is a means by which this temple is measured. I'll tell you about that in just a second. But I want to point out this, that prior to this, the Apostle John is like an observer. But now he's taken an active role in this drama. Take a look at verse 1 of chapter 11. Then there was given to me a measuring rod like a staff. A measuring rod like a staff. Most Bible scholars say it's probably this hollow bamboo-like cane plant that grew in the Jordan Valley. And it was generally anywhere from 11 uh, feet up to 15 feet. The thing about it, it was lightweight and it was straight. So it was an ancient measuring rod. It's not anything you can get at Home Depot or Lowe's, but it was very effective in doing the job. And then there's a mandate given to him, probably from Christ. The context seems to lean in that way. It says in the second part of verse 1, And someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Now, implicit in this mandate is that during the time of the tribulation, there is the temple. Apparently, the temple will be rebuilt. Now you say, wow, in today's climate, if Israel would rebuild the temple, all hell would literally break loose in the Mideast, and you would be right. Now, How come this came about? What happened? Well, I'll, I'll tell you what I think. I think this has something to do with that covenant agreement that was made between the Antichrist and the people on that day, Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27 talks about that. He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, seven years, and, and for a half of the week he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decree is end and poured out on the desolator. So in other words, I think the temple is in existence. It's probably a part of that deal. And I think that the temple sacrifices have been reinstituted as well during this time. Otherwise, they couldn't be stopped, right? He couldn't call a halt to something that doesn't exist. And the temple is where they would bring these sacrifices. We learn from other examples in the Bible about the importance of measurement. What was significant? Why was he mandated? God commanded him to measure this temple Generally, measuring certain things indicated, number one, ownership. Ownership. Uh, It's kind of like 
when we bought a house a year ago, one of the things that they did is took a survey of the land. They measured the land and they told us basically, this is your land. But here, God is making sure because the tribulation time is going to jack up to the great tribulation time with the pouring forth of those bold judgments. He wants this temple, which he owns also, number two, to be protected. So measuring something indicated ownership and it also indicated uh, protection. And so the temple would be protected along with those who worship in it, the priest and such. So the measurement indicates the temple of God and those who are set apart unto God would be separated and, and saved from, if you will, the devastation that was going to take place during this time. I think uh, that's where they end up in Petra, as had been discussed earlier. And look at verse 2. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. We've been hearing a lot about this 42 months. That's three and a half years. So what is not measured is that outer court and the Gentiles are going to trample it under for the purpose of destroying it. Now that's significant because I think it gives us some idea of when these men would come on the scene. Uh, Let me just quote for you from Dr. Wolvert. He said, some believe that the 42 months refer to the first half of Daniel's 70th week, Daniel 9.27. While it's not clear, while it's not clear, the evidence surrounding this passage in Revelation seems to refer to the final three and one half years. This also seems to be confirmed, now watch this, by the fact that in the first of the last seven years, the Jews will actually possess the city of Jerusalem and worship in their temple. Whereas here, now get this, the context indicates that this is the period when the Gentiles would tread down the holy city, implying ill treatment of the Jews and the desecration of the temple. If the former half, the first three and a half years were mentioned in Jerusalem, would be trotted underfoot for the entire seven years. But this is only going to happen for three and a half years. So it seems best to see this time frame that these witnesses come on the scene as during the last three and a half years. Let's take a look at the second scene. As a matter of fact, I have an outline. You have an outline. You can follow along. As a matter of fact, it actually has the translation that I use, which is the same one that John used, so I use it as well. It's the new American standard, yeah. But in any event, um, let's take a look at the duration of their ministry. It says in verse 3, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. This has to be Christ speaking. I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 360 days clothed in in sackcloth. So these individuals are going to be witnesses for that period of time, the three and a half years. What's a witness? It's someone who knows something, And they understand it to be true because they have personally experienced it and they can testify of its truthfulness. 
And this is in line, by the way, with what the Bible describes as the biblical standard for the cooperation of the truthfulness of a matter. It's always based on what? Two witnesses. Capital crimes could not be executed in Israel unless there were two witnesses. When the church practices church discipline, how many witnesses have to be involved? Two witnesses. If an accusation is made against an elder, how many witnesses? Two. So these individuals are coming on the scene, witnesses as they are, to verify the truthfulness of something. And I believe what they're verifying as the truthfulness of something is the judgment that the people are experiencing at this time. This is from God. This is being exercised by God. They will have a prophetic ministry for that period of time of three and a half years. And by the way, that's interesting because it's the same length of time that the outer court which is outside the temple in the holy city, will be given to the nations and the Gentiles to trample under their feet. And they will affirm the truth that the judgments that the world was experiencing at that time and the coming judgments that were about to be unleashed upon them are indeed the righteous expression of God's judgment. They will prophesy. Sometimes when you hear the word, you think of that which is declaring something about the future, but prophesying simply means to declare forth divine revelation received from God, and that's their job. And they'll do this with sackcloth. That's the clothing of mourning and weeping and suffering and grief. The sackcloth will symbolize the mourning of the sins and the disobedience of the world. Now, their description. And I've got to move on. I see by the clock on the wall here. So here we go. Take a look at verse 4. Not only are they two witnesses, and um, we're going to see that they're also described in verse 10 as two prophets, but these now are described as two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. What in the world does that mean? I don't know. Let's move on. No. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could, but I can't. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, the very first place that we see this is in Zechariah chapter 4, uh, and uh, I think 1 through 14. Uh, in there, the imagery there is of Zechariah uh, had this vision, and he sees these golden lampstands, and at the top is a bowl of oil, and olive trees stand on each side, providing perpetual fuel for the light of the lampstands. And the lampstand gives its light, now listen to this, without human maintenance being constantly supplied and maintained by the olive oil flowing from the trees into the bowl. So what has that to do with anything? Well, right after this vision, Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest hear this word, specifically Zerubbabel, who was the governor of Judea and would be the one who would build, rebuild the temple. Here's this word from God in Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 6. Then he said, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Now, what does that mean? The purpose of the vision was to encourage Zerubbabel to complete the temple building and to assure him of the divine enablement to bring that task 
to completion for the glory of God. You know what this is saying to these two, about these two as well? That their ministry is fueled perpetually by the power of God. They will carry out the task because God will see to it. Now let's go on. Let's get beyond that. You can check that out more on your own. Take a look, if you will, at verse 5. And this is the dynamic of their ministry. It says, and if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. Wow. Wow. Here, if the world wants to cancel the two prophets, the two prophets will cancel them. That's amazing. You know why? Because God, in his sovereignty, wants them to carry out their ministry. And nothing and no one is going to stop that. Every time I look at that, I think, boy, that'd be good. I would get in so much trouble. God didn't give me that. And and it goes on to describe further in verse 6. These have the power to shut up the sky so that no rain will fall down during the days of their prophecy. And they will have power over the water to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire at will. They can intervene into the natural order of things with supernatural activity in order to bring more misery upon those who dwell on the earth. That's why I would think it would be pretty important to listen to them. And they would do this not by their own power, not by their own ingenuity, not by their own stamina, but they would do this by the power of God. Well, let's go on. Then something interesting happens. When they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. The beast, now we've already talked about that. This is probably, it is a reference to the Antichrist. I have always found it interesting that I think you could learn something about him in regards to his origin. Where does he come from, according to this passage? And and according to Revelation 17, verse 8, he comes from the abyss. What's the abyss? The abyss is the place for incarcerated fallen angels. He comes out of the abyss, a place of incarcerated fallen angels. And by the way, there's never a place in the scripture where you find people coming out of the abyss. You remember the encounter that Jesus had with the man who had all that legion of demons in them and he tossed them into the pig and all that. One of the things that the demon said to him is, please don't send us to the abyss. Now, what does that mean? Just a thought. I have not, read a, not written a dissertation on this because I'm not sure. <laughs> but coming from the abyss says that he would be probably a high-ranking demon individual who either takes upon himself a human body such as you saw at Sodom and Gomorrah when the two angels went down, or he, he possesses a person, and through that person he does his dirty work. But that's just my theory, and there's probably a lot of people, I'm sure, that will um, come up against that. That's okay. And then take a look at what happens in verse 
8, as we're getting closer, I got two minutes. Isn't that amazing? I told them when they called me that generally my introduction is 30 minutes. But uh, here it is, as it may be. People from my church understand that. I am the champion of part two. Can I do part two next Saturday? <laughs> Let, let's finish it up here and then we'll be able to deal with that. When they finish their testimony, the beast comes out of the abyss, verse 7, and will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Obviously, this is the city of Jerusalem, but it used to be called God's city. Now it's a place that is in, uh, recognized by Sodom and Gomorrah and Egypt. Severe immorality and severe idolatry and things of that nature. And their body is left to lay there. Why? Because it was an act of horrific uh, desecration, disrespect. These people were tormented by these prophets for that period of time. They hated the truth that they were being delivered from them. And they loved the idea that the Antichrist, the beast, had put them to death. Verse 9, those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at the dead bodies for three and a half days and will permit it for their dead bodies to lay in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate that they will send each other gifts because these two prophets tormented them who dwell on the earth. This is going to be called the Dead Prophets Day and they're going to be exchanging gifts and celebration. They're thrilled that these individuals have been put to death. But just like Satan and his demons on that Friday, when Christ died on the cross, the celebration is short-lived. Let's read on. Verse 11, But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet, And a great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. And then they went up into heaven in the cloud and their enemies watched them. There was nothing they could do. This great rejoicing now turned to great fear. Right before their eyes. I could see the cameras of CNN because they'll be here. All over the world, focused on these individuals first as being dead, but now resurrected. And then the voice, just like he does at the time of the rapture, says, come up here. And they leave. What a great job. Pastor Jeff, isn't that neat? First of all, you'd be a prophet of God. You could burn people up like that. Stop the rain. What else? I don't know. Whatever they can do. Oh, turn the water into blood. People can kill you and boom. It just reminds me that there's nothing that anybody on this earth can do to us. They can take your life. But in taking your life, they open the door to greater intimacy with Christ. I don't know about you but I would like that very much. 
I mean, I'm not asking anybody to kill me. <laughs> they are going to kill me. There's 32 minutes. I'm two minutes behind. But <laughs> I would love to be with the Lord in his presence, the God who watches over his servants and enables his servants. If you're in ministry, keep this in mind. This is how ministry is done. It's not done by your power. It's not your ingenuity. It's not your strategy. It's not your five-year plan. It's faithfulness. You do what he tells you to do. He supplies the power to do it, and the end result is certain. So we got success. Okay, that's enough. They're going to throw me out here.